know about you, but over the last while, I've found myself wondering, when I look around the world, how long we have before this age comes to an end. I've been wondering about that quite a lot lately, and I've been talking to people as well who've been wondering the same thing. And so what I want to do is I want to uh, take today and next Sunday, and I want to talk about hope and, and, and how we can hold on to hope despite what's going on. And I want to look at the oracle of a, a, a minor prophet in the Old Testament whose name was Habakkuk. So we're going to go there uh, in, in a bit. But, you know, I, I love to read the, the news, and I've got a whole lot of news apps on my phone because I like, I'm one of those people who loves to know what's going on in the world. I don't just want one channel of information. I, I like to know what's going on around the globe in the world in which I live. And every time I read or any time I watch what's going on, I just think to myself, I don't think that the conditions in our world could, could, could possibly be as dark and as depraved as they are today. I, I, honestly, I look at stuff and I go, how can this be? Uh, so I often find myself wondering if it's an indication that Jesus is about to return to this earth and consummate his kingdom, to set up his kingdom. And, and I look forward to that day. In fact, the, the older I get in this life, the more I'm looking forward to the life that is to come, life in Christ and, and, and the kingdom. And I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime or not. And you know, I think as a, as a church community here this morning, we can, be, uh, we can be relaxed at times, I think, because we, we're quite privileged and quite blessed to live in a city like Perth, because Perth's a great city, and it doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how unwealthy you are, uh, there's so much at our disposal. There's great parks and beaches, and there's so much to do, and it really is a beautiful city. It's, it's a, a fairly safe city. It's, it's a great place to live. But we've got to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that, that everybody else around the world lives like we do, because they don't. And when I look at the world, I, I find myself thinking that, that the conditions of the world, and I'm talking about things at a global level, I just think things are deplorable. If you just cast your mind back one, two, three years ago when this, you, this um, pandemic came in, the whole COVID thing, and it spiked and then if you remember the death of thousands and thousands of people, I remember in Italy it was terrible, thousands upon thousands of people. Brazil, places around the world where people were just dying. And, and, and obviously people had to react. But then it's amazing how the enemy gets into these things. And, 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 and what we've seen over the last while has been a lot of policy confusion, conflicting health advice. We've seen the erosion of basic human freedoms in, 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 in many places around the globe. We've seen the overreach of governments. Um, we've seen mixed messaging. And then along with that, you've had all these wild conspiracy theories that have kind of come into the picture. And it's amazing to me at how, how much confusion and division that it's brought. And, and uh, it's, it's erupted into open anger and hatred amongst people. And I, I keep thinking to myself, you know, a couple of years ago, this wasn't the case. But now people are almost verbally, and, 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 and the hatred is so much that almost they want to get physical with each other, with, with, with the differences in views. And, and, I, and I just think the enemy is at work over here. And as if the impact of COVID on the global economy wasn't bad enough, and you think about all of the other stuff going on, if you think about the conflicts in places like Tigray and um, Yemen and uh, Myanmar, you know, and you look at how people, innocent people are just being shot and persecuted and losing their lives. I look at that and I just go, God, you know, you know, as if that's not enough. 
And then we've got the Russian guy who decides that's it. He's going to go into Ukraine and he's going to... It's an evil war where people's lives, innocent lives, millions of people have had to leave that. Can you imagine you having to flee from your home with a little bag and all you've got and your kids leave your husband or your brother or your son behind? Can you just imagine what those people are going through? And innocent people, places being bombarded to shreds. Terrorism hasn't gone away. I mean, have you seen what's been going on in Israel just in this last week? It's terrible. And so I look around the world and I see this ethnic violence and civil wars and insurgencies and the racial divisions that are out there and the political animosity and the endless arguing, ever-increasing hostility. We're going into another cycle here in Australia, and believe me, we're going to see it. It's going to be in our faces. It's already started. I come from a part of the world where the leaders, so many of them, are self-indulgent and corrupt. And then if you take that stuff aside and you think about, you know, we're supposed to live in a free democracy where, you know, where there are rights and things like that. But, but yet, really, do we have any respect for rights when you can have abortion on, on demand, where you can click on, a, on your computer and stuff can come up on your screen, pornography and stuff, and you can sit there and, and, and look at that stuff and, and not ever think, give a second thought to what's going on behind the camera, what's happening with the trafficking and the innocent people and the kids that are watching that stuff. And we sit with governments who don't even allow, who don't even put in place rules to say, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to have some kind of verification before you look at this stuff. Sexual promiscuity is beamed at us every day. Do whatever you want. Dress however you want. Behave however you want. I mean, many people don't even get married anymore. I was going to say, like, you know, divorce rates are increasing, but actually I was thinking a lot of people just don't even get married anymore. They just join up, join together. And peop- many people who do get married, they, those marriages become a statistic of the divorce rates. And the crime rates. Crime rates haven't gone away. Look around the globe. So-called same-sex marriage is widely embraced. And even Christians who, 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 who really have not come to grips with the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of marriage in Scripture are quite happy to engaged. And now there's a battle for our minds in relation to gender and, and, and uh, your so-called rights according to what you identify as. And <laughs> then you've got all these environmental issues going on, these wild bushfires and these wildfires that, that have been happening not just in Australia but all around the globe. These floods, these storms that have been ongoing in the eastern states and in other places of, of the world you see people rising up in anger, these destructive protests all around the globe. Uh, I read this last week that, that one of these major groups are just going to have a complete month of action and protests in Europe. Um, atheism everywhere. Idolatry of every imaginable expression. Anybody depressed yet? I, I don't know. Ian, I don't know how bad things may yet get, but what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about hope. I want to talk to you today about hope. I have no idea when Jesus is going to return to bring his judgment on the wicked and his vindication of the righteous, but I do know one thing, that that day will come. It will come. 
But my purpose here this morning is not to discourage you. I want to encourage you. I do want to encourage you. There were three fundamental truths that I was reminded of this week. And uh, I want to just share, these, share them with you because I think these are things that we, that we need to hold on to. The first that um, I was reminded of is that God is and always has been uh, and always will be the sovereign Lord over all people and all nations. It doesn't matter if you're a pagan nation or if you're a nation who doesn't acknowledge God in any way. God is still the sovereign Lord over all the peoples of this earth. In other words, if God is in charge, if the sovereign God, the creator God is over all things, then there is purpose in what God is doing and what he permits. I think it's important that we remember that, that there is purpose in what, is, in, in what God is doing and what he allows. The second thing is that God is a, a holy avenger. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 12, God says, you, you shouldn't take vengeance because vengeance is mine. Leave it to me because I'm the one who's going get, to get it right. So don't, go, don't be vengeful. So he is a holy avenger and he will bring justice and he will impose punishment, but his punishment is going to be a perfect punishment. God is the only one who knows the state of each human being. And so he will bring punishment, as Scripture te teaches us, on those who defy him and his will. In other words, there's judgment coming to the earth. And I think very often Christians forget about this because we love to think about God being a loving God and a, and a gracious God and he's a good God and he's my mate. And, and there's nothing wrong with that God is a God of grace. He is a God of love. But we can't, we can't forget the fact that we're dealing with the creator God, the creator of all things, to which humanity is accountable. And so judgment is going to come to this earth. And people who are wreaking havoc and mayhem in our society are going to be held account accountable. So, so whatever is going on in your life, I want you to remember this morning that you serve a God who has purpose in what he's doing. And he is a God who is going to bring judgment. Especially when I look around this world, I think, and I look at people and I go, there's evil here. There's like demonic, some of this activity. God will bring judgment. And our God is also a, a sovereign Lord. He is the righteous judge and a, avenger, but he's, he's immeasurably mer merciful. He is slow to anger and he's quick to forgive. In other words, there is hope. So God is a God of purpose. He is a God of judgment, but there is also hope with our God. We have hope in him. And, and I want to, this morning... Look at a passage of Scripture or a, or a book, really, the Minor Prophet of, of Habakkuk. There are actually a lot of passages where you can find these three truths. But um, the book of Habakkuk is one which does it with a lot of clarity and conviction. In fact, I don't know if you've ever read Habakkuk or when you last read Habakkuk. But, and I think that's how you pronounce it. I pronounce it Habakkuk. Some other people, how do they pronounce it? Habakkuk. Hab I'm like Habakkuk. Uh, it's, that's just me. But I think the pain and the frustration and the confusion that Habakkuk experienced is quite similar to what we can sometimes go through. And so that's why today and next Sunday, I want us to uh, go back in time and learn from Habakkuk how to trust this amazing God of ours when times aren't good and when hope seems to be lost and when the world seems to be swirling out of control. So I'm going to be doing some reading this morning. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it up or get your, fi your phone fired up to, uh, to Habakkuk. I've got a few slides, but I, it's just too many for me to put on, on the screen. Um, and you can follow along this morning. I'm going to read from a passage in Kings and, and from the book of, of Habakkuk. But before we do that, I just want to uh, remind you a little bit about the Old Testament history. And uh, I'm sure you remember this, that um, after David came Solomon, and after Solomon's reign, uh, what happened with the nation of Israel is that they divided. They split into two. 
10 of the original tribes of Israel uh, aligned themselves to form what was known as the Northern Kingdom. It was called Israel. Its capital was in, in Samaria. And then the two remaining tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, uh, formed the southern kingdom called Judah. So you had Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. And all of this took place in around about the 10th century BC. Now Habakkuk was a prophet of God to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk was also, in all likelihood, a contemporary of other prophets that we read, like Jeremiah and possibly Ezekiel and Daniel. So they were around at pretty much the same time that he was. And, and by the time Habakkuk prophesied, the southern kingdom of Judah was all that was left of the covenant people of God, the tribe of, of, uh, of uh, Benjamin and, and, and Judah. These were the only people of God left because about a century before that, before Habakkuk lived, the northern kingdom of Israel had been overrun and it was destroyed and the Assyrians came in and they brought in their own peoples and they dispersed the people of God. They dispersed all, all the, 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 the ten tribes of Israel. And the situation in Judah where Habakkuk comes to spend his life and, and his ministry was not that great. It was incredibly corrupt and wicked. In fact, the word abomination is, is probably the best word to that you could use to describe the perversity and the idolatry that existed in Judah. So if you know the history, you'll know that Hezekiah uh, had, had been the king of Judah for like 29 years, and he was a good king. He was a righteous king over, over Judah. But his son, Manasseh, ascended to the throne in 697 BC after his father Hezekiah died. And although Hezekiah had been a really good man, he, he was a godly man. And you must think about this. Manasseh grew up in his household. He grew up in the household of Hezekiah. But it just goes to show that, that you know, sometimes even growing up in a godly household doesn't work out. Because Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, eventually became one of the most wicked kings that Judah had ever seen. Manasseh ruled the, the southern kingdom of Judah for 55 years. He was an evil man for 55 years. Thank the Lord that here in Australia we've got a system where we can get rid of a ruler every three years. Um, they can be voted out, and we're coming up to that time again. I'm not saying anything about the ruler. I'm talking about uh, Manasseh here this morning. So here we are in the 7th century BC, and Manasseh has ru ruled for 55 years. And I want to read to you from 2 Kings 21, just to give you a little bit of an, an example of, of what kind of guy he was. The Bible tells us in 2 Kings 21 that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the abominable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. So in other, in other words, God had made a way for his people. He'd given them the promised land. And what God had driven out, all those pagan gods, that pagan worship, the killing of innocent people, the shedding of innocent blood, uh, God comes and makes a way for his people. And then Manasseh goes back to those practices of those people that got driven out. It says that he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. What they mean by the high places was they, were, they would go to these places where they would worship all of these pagan gods. They would make their sacrifices to these gods. So he rebuilt the high places which his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal. He made a sacred pole, the Asherah pole, which they used in their worship, uh, as King, King Ahab of, of Israel had done. Where, and they worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So they worshipped all of these gods. They worshipped, they did not worship the one true God, but all of these other gods, the host of heaven. 
Um, it says that he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, right, in Jerusalem I'll put my name. So God says, in Jerusalem I'll put my name. Uh, Manasseh comes and he decides, no, 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 I'm going to put altars to these other gods in, 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 uh, in the temple. It says that he made his son pass through fire. What that means is that he wasn't walking on hot coals. He sacrificed him. He burnt him alive. And in Chronicles it says not only one son, there were several sons that he, that he sacrificed uh, to, to, to these gods. He practiced soothsaying and, and augury, necromancy. He uh, dealt with mediums and with wizards. And Scripture is very clear about this. It says, don't go there. Don't be, don't be going to fortune tellers. Don't be going to have your palm read. Don't be playing with all of those cards that are going to tell you what's going on. That's not what the living God requires. But here's this guy, and he begins to do this evil. It says he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. He made a carved image of Asherah, that he, which is one of these gods, and he put it in the house of the Lord. He puts it in the temple where the Lord had said to David and his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I'll put my name forever. Manasseh comes and sets up, a, sets up an image of one of these gods. It says that he misled his nation to do more evil than the nations had done that the Lord had destroyed before, before um, Israel had taken that land. Um, and then the Lord said by his, the prophets, he said, because King Manasseh of Judah was committing, has committed these abominations, has done things more wicked than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has caused Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such evil that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And you're going to get a shock by hearing what God's going to do. This is what the Bible says. God says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line for Samaria and the plummet for the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will cast off the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and they have provoked me to anger since the day their ancestors came out of Egypt even to this day. It says, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. It says that he shed blood from one side of Jerusalem to the other. You know, in the book of Hebrews, you read about the heroes of faith. And it says that some of them got sawn in half. And historical scholars say that Manasseh was responsible. You ever heard of the prophet Isaiah? Manasseh was responsible for sawing the prophet Isaiah in half. Besides the sin of all of that, he caused Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Horrific. And then after his reign, his, his son Ammon, it says, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and did not walk in, in the way of the Lord. Imagine living in 7th, 7th century BC Judah. <laughs> not so great. One explicit indication of how bad it was, and, and I really I love these words about how bad it was in Judah, was what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. Let's just get this on the screen. Jeremiah is like Jeremiah was around at the same time, and he also prophesied to the people of God because they turned their backs on God. This is what God says to Jeremiah. He says, Hey, listen, Jeremiah, don't even pray for these people. 
Don't, don't, don't raise a cry or a prayer on their behalf and don't intercede with me for I will not hear you. God is stirred up about his people. He's so stirred up. And this is the setting. This is the life and the ministry here for Habakkuk. You can imagine how, how, he, how he felt. I can, hear, I can almost hear Habakkuk crying out, Lord, do something. Look at your people, God. They've walked away from you. Discipline them. Lord, bring some punishment. Change their ways. Cause them to turn from their sin. Lord, how can you allow this to be happening amongst your chosen people? And I just want you to get this because he wasn't talking about the other pagan nations. He wasn't talking about people who didn't believe in God. He's talking about the Jewish people, the people who were in covenant with God. This is what Habakkuk cries out to God. God, let's go to Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through to 4. So Habakkuk cries out to God. He says, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? How long? I cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Why, God, why? The destruction and the violence that's before me, the strife and the contention. God, why do I have to be part of this? Habakkuk says to God, he says, The law has become slack. Justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. And judgment has come forth perverted. I mean, Habakkuk has obviously been crying out to God in prayer for quite a while, but he reaches this place of complete and utter bewilderment. He's confused. You know, we live in a country today where if somebody does something wrong, at least we've got a system where you, you know that the perpetrators are going to be dealt with, hopefully, right? Criminals will be prosecuted. But that wasn't what was going on here in 7th century B.C. Judah. Habakkuk says the law is, is no longer honored. He says the law is broken. He says, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention everywhere. And so the only hope for Judah is divine intervention. That's the only hope. But it wasn't forthcoming. Can you imagine those people whose hearts were still turned to God? Their faith must have been stretched to the limit, stretched to the limit. How can I have hope? Hope appeared to be lost. I'm not exactly sure what Habakkuk expected God to do. Maybe he was praying for God to raise up more prophets to denounce the sins of the, of, of the people of Judah. You know, I don't know. Maybe he was praying for a new king to replace King uh, Manasseh. Maybe he was praying for God to pour out his spirit so that there would be repentance and revival across the nation. I don't know. But he prayed, and yet heaven remained silent. And when God did finally speak, Habakkuk was blown away. The bewilderment that he had experienced while God remained silent was nothing compared to the perplexity that he felt when God finally spoke. I think when God finally spoke and, and answered Habakkuk's prayer, Habakkuk probably said to himself, I wish I'd said nothing. I wish I'd kept my mouth shut. Honestly, I wish I'd not even got to God, gone to God about this. I mean, what did God say? What did God say? When he, when he finally broke his silence, he answered Habakkuk's prayer. This is what God said he was going to do in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk. God says to Habakkuk, he says, Habakkuk, look at the nations and see. He says, you're going to be astonished. You're going to be astounded. For a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. I'm, I'm, I'm orchestrating stuff over here. You, know, you wouldn't even believe what you're going to see. And God says, I'm raising the, the Chaldeans or the Chaldeans. How do you pronounce it? I'm going to go with Chaldeans, right? So he says, I'm raising, rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not even their own. Dread and fearsome are they. 
Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Their horsemen come from far away. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. With faces pressing forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. Of rulers they make sport. They laugh at every fortress and heap up earth to take it. <laughs> they sweep by like the wind. They transgress and become guilty. Their own might is their God. This is what God says he's going to do. God doesn't argue with Habakkuk. He doesn't say, oh, Habakkuk, you've missed it. You're exaggerating how bad conditions are. No, no, no. God agree, agrees with Habakkuk. He's not even angry at Habakkuk for complaining. In fact, God tells Habakkuk pretty much what he's saying over here. He's saying, Habakkuk, get ready. He's saying, Habakkuk, brace yourself. Brace yourself, mate. Brace yourself. Because he was going to completely be perplexed by what God was going to do. God says to Habakkuk, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to deal with these people. I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The, uh, these are the people who were the ancestors of modern-day Iraq, right? And, and they, were, they were vicious people in, the, in those times. And God says, I'm going to cause them to sweep through Judah, destroy Jerusalem, and eventually they're going to take my people into captivity for 70 years to Babylon. Crazy stuff. Because 20 years earlier, this nation was hardly ever, nobody had even heard of these people. But, they, but, they, but, they, but their shock tactics and their, and their ruthlessness had instilled such fear that they became a powerful and prominent nation. The, the scholars say that their strategy, this is what they called their strategy, it was called, termed the ideology of terror. What they would do is they would impale people on wooden poles. They would cut off body parts. They would burn them alive. That's the kind of stuff that they did. So it was no surprise that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were, were even more wicked and corrupt than the people of Judah. But what was shocking over here is how God was going to use them. That's, that's what's really shocking. It's one thing for God to discipline His people. It's one thing for God to chastise His people by making use of another nation, right? But it's something else entirely when the other nation is more wicked than they are. I, I think Habakkuk must have been going to God, Are you serious? The Chaldeans, God, are you serious? They're, they're more wicked and corrupt than we are. Come on, God, Manasseh and his son are evil. They're indescribably wicked and, and, and corrupt. But the leaders and the people of Babylon, God, they're even more worse. Really? Are you serious? And God says, I, I am. I, I know your concerns. Didn't you hear me just describe them to you? God says they determine, these people determine for themselves what constitutes justice. They don't consider God. They've got no regard for anything other than what proceeds out of their own corrupt hearts. God says they're predators. He calls them leopards and wolves and eagles. They're predators. He says their armies are bent on violence. They take captives, uh, they take the enemies captive. And the way he describes it is he says it's like putting your hand in the soil and grabbing the sand. That's how they do it. They just grab them. Their arrogance, God says, is unparalleled. They show contempt for all authority. They mock it and scoff at the kings and the rulers. They worship their own success. They worship their own military strength. They regard themselves as incapable of wrongdoing. And God says, this is the way it's going to be. Habakkuk is like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I'm sure he must have been stunned. He must have been saying, surely not, Lord, surely. I can imagine Habakkuk because sometimes, you know, this is the way it works with me. I'm like, God, really? 
Really? And I think with, I've never been in Habakkuk's situation, but Habakkuk must be God. Have I heard correctly? Surely maybe it's garbled transmission over here. Really? Uh, have I heard clearly? And then Habakkuk gets to grips with what God is going to do, and we read his response in verses 12 through to 17. <laughs> God, Habakkuk says to God, God, are you not from of old? Are you not like the ancient of days? Oh, Lord, Lord my God, you, you, you are the Holy One. Surely, God, we're not going to die. We will not die because of who you are. He says, Lord, yes, I know you've marked your people for judgment, and you, O rock, you've established them for punishment. But Habakkuk says, but Lord, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You can't look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those that are more righteous than they? God, how come you're quiet? How can you allow this to happen? You've, you've made us to be like people, we're like the fish of the sea. We're like crawling things that have no ruler. He says the enemy brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. It's a, it's a dragnet. He, he gathers them in this dragnet and he rejoices and exults. And, and he says the enemy sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet because in the way that they're taking their enemies, this is bringing them wealth, right? Their portion is lavish. Their food is rich. And, and, and Habakkuk says to God, and then, and then to keep this enemy, to keep on emptying their net and then destroying more nations without mercy? God, how on earth can, can you allow this to continue? Habakkuk reminds God that he's eternal, that he's holy. And that gives him some confidence here that what the Chaldeans are going to do to, to uh, Judah will mean that the people won't be utterly annihilated. He says, we shall not die. But Habakkuk is still confused. He says, God, your eyes are too pure to look at the evil that's being perpetrated over here. How can you use these people to bring judgment against us? Yes, God, we are evil, but they're worse. God, how can you compromise your own holiness by using such an unholy nation? He says, they are like the fish of the sea. They're vulnerable, right? Babylon are the fishermen that are catching them. And the reference to the fishermen where he says, bringing them up with a hook, what they would do in those days is they would actually, with their captives, they would pierce the bottom lip like this with a hook and they would tie them a single line together. That's how they would subdue them and carry them away. That's how bad things were. That's what he means when they bring them up with a hook. Sadistic. The whole thing is beyond Habakkuk's ability to understand. To his mind, the way God's answered a prayer, it's like God answering your prayer to heal your headache and he gives you cancer. That's pretty much the way Habakkuk sees it over here. It's like God, it's like you're using dirt and grime to clean your laundry instead of soap. Habakkuk challenges God on, on what he, God says he's going to do. And then he kind of braces himself. He's like, I don't know what God's going to say over here. And so he stations himself and he listens for an answer. In Habakkuk 2 verse 1, it says, he says, I will stand at my watch point and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Only God can solve the problem. Divine revelation is what's needed, not human speculation. This is, this is his only hope. He needs God to step in, but he doesn't know what God's doing. So he waits for God to speak. And I'm going to pick this up again next week. But as I, as I said at the beginning, there are three primary truths for us to learn here. The first thing is that it's entirely understandable if you and I wake up in the morning and we look at the news or we read something on the internet and we say to ourselves, God, where are you? 
where are you, God? Why don't you do something about this chaos? God, why don't you step in? Look at the wickedness around me. God, look at the situation. It's entirely understandable because Habakkuk woke up every day and was pretty much asking the same question. And God was quick to remind him that even though it looks like he's not doing anything, he is still God. He is still God. And he is in complete control. He has not abandoned his creation. He continues to exert supreme and sovereign control over all things. And I think that that's something that we have to remember. We've got to, we've got to know who our trust is in. God is in control. We don't know all the ways in which he works, but we've got to put our trust in him. Just like Habakkuk, you know, we live in a time where, where, where justice is perverted, things get twisted. Sometimes I look around and I think, how come nobody holds these people accountable for what they're doing? Why are they not being held accountable for the actions? But again, God is holy, and he will avenge the righteous. The key thing is that you remain righteous. The key thing is that you remain in God and with God. The key thing is that you find yourself in company with other believers. The key thing is that you're getting this word of God into your heart because God will take care of the righteous. You don't have to worry about those doing those things. You can just pray about it, pray against it. God is the righteous judge of all. He's a holy God. He will avenge us. If, if not in this life, if not today or tomorrow, he will bring justice to bear on humankind. I just want to tell you this morning, no one is going to get away with anything. No one. Go and read Revelation 20. No one. So we can trust God when we look around and we say, God, how can you let those innocent people die? How can you let those people go through persecution like that? God, how can these people get so confused in their brains that they can't tell the difference between a male and a female anymore? How come, God, do my children have to be subject to this kind of teaching in a school environment? God, why are these things happening? God, how am I supposed to deal with it? You need to know that if you stick to the course that God has laid out, if you stick to the course that the Spirit of God leads you in, you don't have to worry about those things. You can trust God because He will take care of it. And He is the only one who can bring a righteous justice. And the third thing I want to remind, or just maybe remind all of us this morning, is that, is that when it feels like, you don't know where God is. When it feels like it's hell on earth, when, when you're really troubled, when you're really despairing in your heart and you've, you're losing that sense of peace, I want to remind you this morning that there is hope. There is hope. There is hope. We may not, we may not like the way God does things sometimes. We, we, sometimes we may question His timing. Sometimes we may God, God, really, is this going to be effective? God, is in what you're doing? So we can doubt the effectiveness of the methods of God. But I want to tell you this morning, hope remains because our God is holy and He is true and He is altogether worthy of our trust. doesn't matter how bad things might get, put your trust in Him because He is the hope giver. And that, let me tell you something, is the assurance that Habakkuk took hold of. This is what Habakkuk prayed uh, in Habakkuk chapter 3. This is what, this is what he said. Um, and I just want to remind you that, 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 that God poured out his justice. But Habakkuk still held course. He still had his hope in God. He said, though the fig tree does not blossom, and even though there's no fruit on the vines, and, and, and the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, even though the flock is cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. 
God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he makes me tread upon the heights. The point of this declaration of faith by Habakkuk is to remind all of us that the circumstances on earth in which we find ourselves so often may never improve in our lifetime. And I want to tell you something, folk, this morning. It may even get worse. Conditions in Australia and around the world might come close to the depravity and the idolatry that was rampant in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 7th century BC. That's how bad it might get. But we have hope because we have God. We have God. In all of the human wickedness, the destruction, the degenerate behavior, we, just like Habakkuk, can rejoice in the Lord. We can take joy in the God of our salvation. In the morning, you can wake up and say, God, I choose to be joyful because you're the God of my salvation. My hope is in you. My trust is in you. I don't need to worry about these circumstances. I don't need to worry about those people that I work with. I don't need to worry about the evil that I see, the stuff that's being perpetrated. You are the hope of my salvation. You are the strength that I need, that I have. Every day, we need to remind ourselves that God is our strength. How many of you are doing that this morning? How many of you wake up in the morning when you're feeling like, I don't know if I've got what I need to get through today? That's when you've got to say, God is my strength. Holy Spirit, would you come and restore and renew and strengthen me? God is my strength. Every day, opening up our lives to the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, give me ears to hear, give me eyes to see, give me a sense of obedience to follow your leading. Help me with that. I want to close with just one quick example of how hope remains, even in the middle of unimaginable sin and idolatry. This is how great God is. <laughs> the mercy and the forgiveness of God never, ever disappears. You know, after a lifetime of, of utter wicked, wickedness, this is, this is what happened to uh, Manasseh. Let's just look here in Chronicles. It says that the Lord brought, so he was taken away, right? The Lord brought against them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh captive in manacles, bound him with fetters, and brought him to Babylon. And while he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. This evil, evil person. Next slide, it says, He prayed to him, and God received his entreaty. God heard his plea and restored him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord indeed was God. And Manasseh took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of well-being and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. I just want to tell you something this morning, that it's never too late. There is always hope. And just as we can be encouraged to have hope despite the times that we're living in, the same is true for your life. Folk, the same is true for your life. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and maybe what you've done in your life is you've set up high places where other things have become more important than God. In effect, what's going on in your life is you're worshiping those things. Your worship is going to those things instead of God. So your Conscious awareness of the presence of God, you're pressing into God, your prayer life, you're letting the Word of God become rich within you. Your company keeping with other believers is at a minimal level because other things have taken precedence. And often that's what happens. We set up high places 
in our own life. And I just want to remind you, God is merciful. He will forgive the worst of sinners. And all you've got to do is you've got to return to Him in repentance and faith. And by repentance, it means begin to change your way of thinking. And also, I want to say to you this morning, the same is true for people that you love. Family, spouses, friends, people that you love that you might be praying for right now. And you're saying, God, I, I pray that they would surrender their lives to you. I pray that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus, that they would come into a, a relationship with Jesus through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. God is a gracious God. It doesn't matter how far gone anyone might be, just like with Manasseh, God is still capable of turning the situation completely around. I want to read to you, and then we can close. And in my Bible, I, I have uh, what's called the, uh, apoc the uh, Apocrypha. I think it's the Apocrypha. It is the Apocrypha. The hidden books. Many Bibles, many Protestant Bibles don't contain these books, but for me, I, I quite in, enjoy these books. They're not included in the canon of Scripture because it's not seen as the inspired Scripture. But these are, scriptures, these are books that uh, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, many of those churches still include in, in their Bibles. But what's in, in this is the prayer of Manasseh. I want to read his prayer to you. He says, O Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and of their righteous offspring, you who made heaven and earth with all their order, who shackled the sea by your word of command, who confined the deep and sealed it with your terrible and glorious name, at whom all things shudder and tremble before your power. For your glorious splendor cannot be borne, and the wrath of your threat to sinners is unendurable. Yet immeasurable and unsearchable, yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy. Yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy. For you are the Lord Most High of great compassion, long-suffering, and very merciful, and you relent at human suffering. O Lord, according to your great goodness, you have promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. And in the multitude of your mercies, you have appointed repentance for sinners so that they may be saved. Therefore you, O Lord God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for, for the righteous for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who do not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me who am a sinner. And this is what Manasseh says. He says, For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sand in the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord. They are multiplied. I'm not worthy to look up and see the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities. I'm weighted down with many an iron fetter so that I am rejected because of my sins. And I have no relief, for I have provoked your wrath and have done what is evil in your sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offenses. And maybe this is for some of us. Maybe this is for some of our families. Manasseh, this very same Manasseh, says, And now I bend the knee of my heart, imploring you for your kindness. I have sinned, O Lord. I have sinned. And I acknowledge my transgressions. I earnestly implore you, forgive me. O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever or store up evil for me. 
Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will manifest your goodness. For unworthy as I am, you will save me according to your great mercy, and I will praise you continually all the days of my life. For all the host of heaven sings your praise, and yours is the glory forever. I want to encourage you this morning. If that's the kind of prayer that you need to pray, or if there's somebody you know who needs to be praying that prayer, God is merciful. He will bring hope. He is the hope giver. Despite how bad it might be. And folk, this judgment that Revelation speaks about, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says that you either walk in the Spirit or you walk in the flesh. And he says if you walk in the Spirit, you're in a place of life. But he says if you're walking in, in the flesh, in other words, you're chasing after those things that are not of God, the end result is death, not life. And Scripture repeatedly talks about a separating of those who are in God and those who are not in God. If Jesus had to return this afternoon, if the world had to be shaken with such an extent that the King of glory reappeared, where would you find yourself? Where would your family find yourself? Themselves. So I only say this because I have, a, I have this, this strong urge to, to encourage you to take your walk with God seriously. God is looking for hearts that are turned towards Him. Don't be like that lukewarm Christian that the Scripture speaks about in Revelation. It says, you're either hot or you're cold. Don't be lukewarm because if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out. God is a God of love, of immeasurable love. But the Scripture also teaches us that judgment will come. Don't be like the people of Judah, those covenant people of God who turned their back on Him. Be someone who says, God, I'm for you. I want more of you in my life. I want to live for you. Thank you.